0: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: HRN is now on Kitch, the first live streaming community for the food obsessed. Go to kittch.com and find HRN in the channels listing.
2: Hey, hey, hey! Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Corboni. I'm the host, and I'm traveling up north of Boston in Massachusetts, and I'm looking for some of the great bottle shops and and beer bars uh, around the country. Uh, as we always have been, and uh, this time I'm at RMA Craft Beer in Amesbury, Massachusetts. It's got a really great selection of craft beer and hard cider, and um, Aaron, the owner, had told me that one of their top-selling beers was a local brewery called Rockport Brewing. So we're here at a tasting in their store, and I'm here with, with uh, some of the people from Rockport Brewing, so we're going to introduce our guests. So let's start with this gentleman.
3: I'm Ray Pickup from Rockport
4: Brewing Company, and I'm the uh, founder and brewer. Great, and you, sir? My name is Tyler Johnson. I'm a sales manager from Rockport Brewing Company on the North Shore.
2: Okay, we're getting warmed up. We did a couple of takes, and we're tasting through some of their beers. But, you know, for, for me, it's like... Always there's, you know, there's breweries and there's tasting rooms, but there's nothing like finding a good bottle shop or a beer bar where you feel welcome and, there, and there's education and, and tasting experiences. So, Ray, you know, for you, I, I noticed on your website that the retail locations uh, in this area seem to be a really big part of your, of your strategy.
3: Yes. So uh, retail locations like Iron that uh, Aaron runs is the lifeblood of the craft beer industry. You know, without the tastings, the interaction, and the buy-in from local retailers like Aaron, you know, we wouldn't be on the map. Um, you know, with on-prem and off-prem sales, you know, that that's what drives us. You know, our product will only take us so far, but it's the community uh, emotional investment that's put in, which, you know, Aaron is a great partner.
2: So how'd you get started? I see pictures of you with a five-gallon uh, homebrew set up in your driveway.
3: So I uh, I moved north of the city, probably Eight years ago now, and I needed a hobby. <laughs> I didn't uh, know anybody up where I moved. You know, my wife's family's been there for hundreds of years. Uh, so I moved to a foreign land, even though it was only 40 miles north of where I grew up. So I needed a hobby, my wife was, uh, you know, ready to kick me out of the house because I was bothering her too much. So we started brewing five-gallon batches in our driveway, and uh, the rest is kind of history. Well, not history, but unwritten history yet, I guess you could say, because we have a long way to go. A lot to learn, a lot to brew, and uh, hopefully a lot to sell
2: all right, so Tyler you're the sales rep we're kind of we are doing a, a, a tasting here, just like we would if if, if there were customers. Um, tell me about the first beer that you tasted because you you 're a legend around in these parts, apparently, when Tyler comes in from Rockport Brewing to this retail location, they do their their most business, and it looks like right now your beers are number one and number two. So uh, tell us about the relationship for you, you, you as a sales rep here and then, then about the beer that we're tasting.
4: So when I first saw Rockport beers, it was on my friend's Instagram page that he was managing a store down in Peabody. Um, and I saw the Rockport beers he was posting. And I was like, OK, I need to try those beers first of all. And second of all, I need to reach out to whoever is the owner of this company and get those beers in my store because I was currently managing a store myself. Um, so I got my hands on some hatchet. That was my first beer from them. Um, it's a New England session pale ale or IPA, and it is just it's so light, it's so easy, it's just a summer crusher and like the canard, everything behind the entire company. I was like, I need that in my store. So I um I reached out to Ray via Instagram. Ray came to the store and it was instant, we we hit it off and you know, his mission like aligned with my mission and I, you know, I kept working at the store and, you know, kept pushing the Rockport beers. And, you know, once it was time for me to kind of end my retail, you know, whatever you want to call it, I, I just, you know, I reached out, or Ray reached out to me for an order. And, um, I was like, I don't work at the store anymore, but do you need help with the company? I'd love to help you out if you need anything. And, um, so that's when it started. And I started um, being a sales manager for, for Rockport Brewing Company um, and that's when he told me about the newest beer that we'd be brewing is the Italian Pilsner, the Pescato, absolute crusher. This beer is delicious. It's, it's just it's the perfect beer. It's the perfect beer.
3: So, uh, you know, Tyler's being a little modest here. So Tyler, as I'm sure everyone listening can tell, he's an electric personality. So what he said is uh, true. how we first met and how we first started getting connected and we just you know we always had that connection so when he became a uh, free agent so to speak I uh, jumped all over it and I've always had it in my mind that if this kid becomes available he's going to be working for Rockport Brewing Company you know like you said earlier he's a local legend Um, he likes to go out at night he likes to have a good time but he's just that overall fun happy go lucky guy that Everyone wants to be around, and he's electric, you know. So there's there's no uh, disputing that with anyone, and it was an easy uh, an easy ask when I asked him to come on board.
2: So so when you start, you know, what, one thing I noticed in this this part of Massachusetts, a lot of indie businesses, there's retail shops, there's bars, and, and there's a lot of small breweries. Um, what was it like for you building up from you know the five gallon test batch to, to the to the to what you have now?
3: Yeah. So our journey was uh, I wouldn't say it was easy, but it wasn't difficult. You know, I first started making beer as a hobby, and then that turned into competitions, winning competitions, and then the last competition that I entered uh, was the first time that anyone won the People's Choice and also the judges. Um, so that was the first time, and that's when that kind of solidified in my mind that hey, let's kick the tires in this and let's see where it kind of goes. You know, there's there's like you said earlier, there's a ton of great breweries in Massachusetts, specifically small ones that really dial it in, um, because when you get into the commercial game. On, on large scale, you kind of lose that feel and that touch because you're more worried about trying to sell beer on the market rather than just kind of doing what you feel. And, and, you know, brewing beer is just much, it's very similar to, to making food. You know, there's cooking food and then there's cooking food. You know, or, you know, you either get the finesse or you don't. And I think that a lot of smaller breweries here in Massachusetts have the finesse where they elevate their brands, you know. So I kind of took the playbook on what we did off of a few different ones. You know, I've been at Homebrew home Club for years. Uh, we have some pro brewers in, our, in my homebrew club. So I was able to lean on them. And I'm just trying to take little pieces from everyone's business and, and craft it into our own model. Um, so was it was a difficult starting? Uh, it was just a long road. It wasn't necessarily difficult, but if you stay adamant and you stay on top of things, you can get stuff done.
2: Here's another shout out to RMA Craft Beer, and Tyler will back me up. You know, when 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 I was in New York, and and the growth of of craft beer in New York City, more and more people wanted the the, the beers that were brewed in in New York City, and. You know, when, when you go away, it's like I, I love threes and I love other half. But when I'm up in Massachusetts, I, I want to find the, the local beers. And this is one store where I've really – because, you know, not every bar, not every restaurant, not every store really does does support local. And here there's so many brands, Dorchester, Rockport, so many that I've never heard of. Tyler, why don't you give a, sh- a shout-out to a couple other Massachusetts breweries that people outside of the state might not know.
4: So a couple of my favorite local breweries <clears> – <throat> Cheers. Would be um, one right on the street. My buddy Stevie owns it. It's uh, Bear Wolf Brewing Company right out of Amesbury, Massachusetts. They have just been, you know, they've, they've always been keeping it funky, keeping it fun, keeping it weird. Um, and we like that around here. Another one that's one of my favorites is um, Stellwagon Brewing Company out in Marshfields. You know, they've been, they were slowly inching their way up north and um, they've really made their presence known. So I'm, I'm really digging their stuff as well um another one of my faves is uh sylvaticus down the street as well right in amesbury super like very european style like you know lagers and just weird stuff nothing you know nothing super hoppy no hazies um they just do really fun stuff as well but um as far as that goes those are those are my top three faves out of rockport brewing company like outside of Rockport brewing company um
2: no, that's great. I mean, like I said, coming to the store was eye opening, i when, when I walk around and I'm like, I don't know any of these these breweries. Um, I wanna learn more, you know. So f- for you, this whole community up here, tell us about it. I think a couple of weeks ago it was Massachusetts Craft Beer Week too.
3: It was. So the the bear community is very tight knit. You know, no one looks at it as competition, it's mostly collaboration. Um You know, I don't know how it is in other states. I can only speak about our area and our communities. But, you know, without the the people buying in emotionally into your brand, you know, you're never going to be able to sell any beer if that's what you're into it. If you're into it to to make money, great. If you're into it to to make people happy and, you know, be the life of a party or whatever it's going to be, you know, it's all about community. It always has been and it always will be. If you don't have the backing of your peers that are around you, you're never going to be successful. So is it about the liquid it is is it about the branding it is but it's solely about the community and how you kind of intertwine yourself especially you know Tyler grew up in this area I didn't you know so I had to work a little bit uh, extra and make some uh, special beer deliveries
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well that that's a big part of it hey and talking about your team the your definitely your your design and and the can design stands out so how important is that to your brand obviously it's important but who, who does it, and, and how did that become your brand identity?
3: Sure. So Rockport has always been known as a small seaside community that was known as like, a, like an artist colony. So we wanted to make sure that our brand as a whole, under the entire umbrella, really showcased artists from Rockport and, you know, stuff that we believed in. So with our first uh, beer that we put on the market, which was a hatchet, my brother-in-law drew that design. You know, I gave him the concept, but he drew it. Uh, our second release was Twin Lights. Uh, Stefan Mears, a local Rockport artist who sells crazy amounts of oil paintings and everything else for astronomical amounts of money. Uh, he drew our second one, which is our Twin Lights. Our third one was our McAteer's Dryer Stouts, and that was my great-grandfather's World War I Army photo. Then we had our Will Cove. Uh, the artist actually fell through on the design, and when we were taking our son or our daughter, it was our daughter, not our son, for her one-week checkup after she was born. We saw it on the wall, and it was our pediatrician that made it. So uh, my child's pediatrician did it for our whale cove. He was the artist on that. Our jetty juice was just a picture that we took and manipulated. Um, But all of our artwork is all local. Our briscato that Tyler was talking about earlier, my aunt, who was right off the boat from Italy, um, she grew up uh, there, and, and she came over here. She does mosaics on the side just for you know, shits and giggles. And, you know, she, uh, so she did the mosaic for a pescado. So we try to keep it close. You know, I'm very fortunate to have some very talented people in my family to put some stuff together, but also Rockport is an incredible community for, uh, for artists. So we believe in local, you know, we believe in, in lifting people up around us as they are helping to lift us up. So, you know, the high tide raises all ships.
2: Oh, it's, it's great in this area. So there's a lot of history, Rockport, New Report. These areas, a lot of histories, small towns going way back. All right, Tyler, tell us about this next beer. The, is this a
4: White Ale? The Whale Cove, yeah. It's a White Ale. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Brewed with lemon peel, coriander, chamomile, um, super low ABV. What's that, 4.6? Four, 4.9 on that one. Um, it's It's the perfect crusher. It's... It's citrusy but light. It's not overly sweet. It's just, it's just a really good beer to pair with any meal, on the boats, on the docks, on the beach, wherever you go. Um, it's just an all all around delicious.
2: Tyler, you're set up here at the the back of the store, RMA Craft Beer, in Amesbury, kind of ready for a tasting. So, yeah. would are, would you be tasting the customers the same way that you're tasting me right now?
4: No, honestly, I wouldn't. I would be up front at the front of the store, um, kind of, like, welcoming the customers as they come in, you know, asking if they want to try some tasty brews. Honestly, if I was, to, if I was doing a tasting, I would, I would be like, eh, you want to try some free beers? And then I'd have them come up because nobody can, you know, refuse a free beer. <laughs> um, as far as anything else goes, I would ask them what their style is, like, what do they prefer? Um, and then I would go from there, whether, you know, they were into the IPAs, whether they like more lagers or pilsners, or if they like a stout, you know. Um, you never know who's going to walk through the door, and you never know what they're going to want, what do they want to expect. So you've got to be open and flexible and kind of just, you know, fluid.
2: So, Ray, you're, you're re-pouring this beer. Um, you, was there a reason where you're not—this is an issue sometimes with cans and, and how things are served. Um, you just made a choice to open a second can of this.
3: I did. That one was looking a little thin. I don't know how old that one was out of the uh, sample cooler, but uh, I grabbed a uh, fresher one. You know, sometimes the yeast settles out. A lot of uh, hot matter, you know, just uh, the thicker stuff and specifically wheat ales settles out when it sits too long. So I guess I looked over and I saw they were looking a little thin. So I grabbed a uh, fresh can that, that I brought with me and, uh, you know, just want the good representation.
2: No, this this is an important part of your, your business. Again, like back to how do you build this brand up? I mean, you're, you don't have a brewery right now, but you're putting all the things in place. So this quality control, is it really that you guys just have to be on top of every account and know what's moving?
3: Yeah, every single uh, beer that goes out, if it doesn't pass our uh, quality check, we go out and grab it. Um, so we actually ran into a situation. So right now we're a, technically a contract brand. We don't have our own home, so to speak. Um, so we brew at other local breweries. They We give them the recipes. We give them very uh, clear direction on how we want our beer to be. They package it. Last year, we were going through a little transition between one brewery to another, and uh, the quality wasn't up to our standard. And, uh, it, you know, the, the, to get technical on you, the parts per million as far as the dissolved oxygen in the packaged beer was a little higher than we expected or we were even— kind of told so we had to go actually take bear back you know we distributed almost 300 cases in two days we had to go take it all back because we have a high standard because if if something's on the shelf that we're not satisfied with or happy with we're gonna grab it um you know i know you saw me grab that it's just that's our philosophy with our brand i, I never want to put anything out that we're not proud of um it's just
2: i mean you, you just I, i'm impressed and it just you just lit up you're like i was t- I, honest i was tasting this 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 one white ale and just something was off about it, and you didn't say anything. And you went, and you got a, a fresh sample that you brought. And thanks for doing that. I mean, I, I remember like some guys like Anthony from Transmitter in New York came in my old bar, and for him the the, the, the whatever the the mix of, of the on the draft was off. Like it was, it was too foamy, and he was uh, he was upset because he cared. He went in the back. He he played around, a lot, and that'll happen a lot. The rep or the brewer comes comes to your establishment, will play around with your draft lines because not not everyone knows exactly how to serve every beer, and it's hard. And with cans too, people think it's so easy, but there's definitely shelf life, even if it's not listed on there.
3: There is, especially specifically with the uh, the wheat beer, you know the the yeast has to be roused in it, so that might have been sitting there for a month, you know, gravity is something we can't stop. It's going to always pull that down. And, uh, you know, that happens with the IPAs or anything that's heavy on, you know, flaked adjuncts or anything else that you want to add. You have to rouse the stuff, and that's why the IPA game is so so quick to turn around. You know, everyone's like, uh, oh, 10 weeks old. Well, it's all—it's not really old. It's just it's thinning out a little bit because gravity's doing its thing. You know, it's pulling all of that. It's, it, all that everything that was in suspension is now dropping to the bottom of the can. That's usually the little boogers that you see when you tip the can upside down. That's falling out. What's a booger? Uh, a booger is a snot. Uh, <laughs> but it's usually the, the little clumps of either yeast or, you know, trube that's kind of left over uh, that, that was in suspension when the beer was packaged. So every once in a while, I'm sure people that are listening kind of dealt with that where some little thing falls off the bottom of the can when you tip it over and you shake it. Uh, that's just, it's, it's nothing that's bad for you. It's something that was just in suspension that's no longer in suspension.
2: Yeah. So no, back to when you started, so tell us a little bit about your the awards you won as a home brewer.
3: Sure, so I started entering. Uh, the first ever competition I entered was a uh, an out-of-state competition. It was right over the border in uh, Maine, and uh, I placed second with the first ever recipe I ever created on my own. Um, so that, you know, gets you going a little bit. You're like, all right, well, when's the next one? When's the next one? So start grabbing awards, you know, not so much awards, but just, you know, recognition in the homebrew area. Um, people in the club really started loving the beer, and then you start bringing your beer to festivals. Um, there's a big one up in New Hampshire called the Home Brewer's Jamboree. Uh, there's another one down the South Shore. I forget the name of it off the top of my head. I think they call it Warp Pours. It's down in Mansfield. You know, that's another great one that you get, you know, some serious recognition from these, where a lot of people that have started smaller breweries have gone through. It's almost like a uh, rite of passage. So once you start doing well in competitions, you just see where it can go. And, you know, we're still trying to figure out where we're going.
2: So let's move forward. And when, when I talked to you on the phone about a month ago, we were planning this out. You, you talked about the need for commercial space. You're you're looking to open a brewery. Um, tell us where you're at with that and and what are the challenges? I mean, this is in North of Boston, Massachusetts, it's tight. There's not like giant country fields, are there?
3: Uh, not so much where I live in Rockport and where we want to be based out of, uh, The hardest part is it's not really commercialized or industrialized, I should say. Um, There is basically no commercial area. You know, there's one area in Rockport on Bearskin Neck, but they're all small, old fishing shacks. You know, so as far as a production facility, we're probably not going to have it in Rockport. Uh, We still want to have a presence there moving forward. We think we may have something for next season uh, after one of the restaurants hopefully they don't go out of business but
2: so like a, ta- a tap room
3: yep a tap room in Rockport but we have uh, identified a spot in Gloucester uh, it's 20,000 square feet that we're going to start a production facility have a tap room on site a restaurant partner but we still want to be in our community in Rockport you know it's a commitment that I made obviously I named my brand Rockport Brewing Company for a reason I you know I love the community that I live in and I wanted to be that hometown brewery and so I still have a commitment with the town to do as much as we possibly can there. But within what's available, Uh, you know, specifically in Massachusetts, we have probably looked at two to three dozen properties trying to identify a spot. And they just either they're not right for us, for our needs um, as a brewery, or they're just not the right property in general, too far off the beaten path. The sailings are too small. You know, there's a million things that you're looking at that you don't really know until you kind of figure out what equipment you want, where you want to go, how big you want it to be. You know, there's a lot of X factors in there. Where you know I decided could we fit stuff in the spaces we looked at? Yes, but I have an idea and a vision of where we want to be. I'd rather find a space to grow into, than going into a space and then realizing, hey, we want to expand, but we don't have any space there. Now we got to start over again from uh, from scratch, which doesn't really. I don't. I don't want to do it again. <laughs> you know, going through oh, it yeah. the first time.
2: You know. And and here, like to say, Mass. I remember from New York State, in very short time, the, the the rules, the laws changed in in a really positive way, enable more breweries to open and, and have tasting rooms. Um, Massachusetts seems to be really friendly to to, to businesses and, and breweries, isn't it? It
3: is. It, it's extremely, but it also comes down, you know, once again, to community. You know, a lot of the brewers or owners of breweries that want to open know their politicians. They know the roles. You know, they're part of their community. So, I, you know, is it easy? I wouldn't say it's necessarily easy. You've got to be adamant. The paperwork has to be clean. There has to be very distinct things that have to be crossed off for you to be able to do this. So, you know, it's easier than you think, but it's also harder than you think. You know, I know I'm kind of giving you a vague answer on that, but if you know what you're doing, it's easy. If you don't, it's an extremely uh, high hill to climb.
2: Yeah, and Tyler, so here at RMA Craft Beer, I'm just going back to because this this. Retail store is amazing. The, what do you call these stores again?
3: So this, uh, I would categorize it as a Packy. I don't know about everyone here on the North Shore, but I'm from the city, so we call them packies in the city. Packy, like
2: a package store?
3: Yes, uh, so that would be uh, an abbreviation for a package store, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: So in this Packy, <laughs> there's like so many beers. There's there's Belgian beers, there's Vermont, but there's also tons of Massachusetts beers. So there's a board here with, with the top sellers And you guys are on it. So tell me the the top sellers in this store
4: right now. So it looks like number one and number two are going to be Rockport Brewery beers, both IPAs. The first one's going to be our flagship, the Hatchet. The second one is going to be Jetty Juice, kind of a middle ground, uh, New England style IPA. Absolutely delicious. But as far as the other, you know, the other top ones, they're all local breweries, you know. Bentwater Brewing, we got Mighty Squirrel Brewing, we got Winter Hill Brewery, Mayflower Brewing. These are all local breweries from Massachusetts, so it's it's clear to me that Ainsbury supports local.
2: Wow! So that that um, this Cloud Candy, right?
4: It's Cloud Candy. Yep.
2: Mighty Squirrel Cloud Candy. Mighty Squirrel. Wow! I, I keep learning a, a lot. But so, what? Why is your beer top? That's what I want to know.
4: I guess it's just really delicious, and you know, Aaron's a big supporter of us. Um, yeah, we and you know we show up. That's the biggest thing. We show up, and and we support local ourselves. So I guess it's it's just it's just karma coming around. You know, we support local; the locals support us. It's you know, one hand feeds the other.
2: No, th- this is a fun journey for me. Just coming to a new place and and finding a, a, a really solid uh, retail packy, and uh, getting getting Aaron's feedback, and now getting to meet you guys. And Aaron said to me, listen, Jimmy, I want you to do a radio show with us. And why don't we do it with, with Rockport? And he had explained to me who you guys were and, and everything. And, um, you know, you could go to, I feel like you could go to every state in the country right now. And there's going to be breweries you never heard of and, you know, retail locations that you don't know. But once you find those those key accounts, I mean, it's kind of like sales, right? I mean, you've got, I go to your website and I'm like, where do these guys sell? And I'm like, whoa, tell us the top locations in your area that you sell it give them shout outs because obviously your beers are are in the the top packies and retail stores in this area
4: oh yeah so um rma is one of my top um off-prem accounts and one of my one of my top accounts right now for on-prem is the rusty can in byfield they're like a small town barbecue joint and honestly we They they don't do any draft from us. They just do strictly cans from us, and they just, you know, usually they order every single week, and the the locals love the beers. They do order every week. That's a fantastic account.
3: You know, we have such good base, uh, such a good base, with all of our retailers. You know, uh, the guys that, that I brought onto the team, you know, they've all been, they have the experience with knowing how to speak to retail buyers because they were them. You know, every single person on our team, I have i wouldn't say poached, but they're people that I got to meet while I was slinging the cases by myself, you know, out of the back of the truck. Um, You know, those were things that that we had common ground and we hit it off. And so are we the top seller in, in each brand because of our liquid? Maybe. Is it because of, you know, our sales reps? Maybe. You know, there's a lot of maybes in there, but all I know is that, you know, we're selling a lot of beer, which is great. You know, and and getting our story out and and getting, you know, the artwork out and all the local people that support us. You know, we're helping them raise their businesses just like they helped us raise our business.
2: So you're doing it an old school way. You started out, you're making the beer, and then next up is is your own brewery. Well, this this latest beer is really perking on my palate. What is it?
3: So uh, you're drinking the first one that I have at the market for us. It's called uh, Hatchet. So that was an ode so Rockport was a dry town for 168 years. And it all
2: until from- you guys came.
3: Uh not not until we came. It actually uh so 2008 was when it was no longer a dry town, but we didn't get our first liquor store until
2: last summer. Wait. Let's start over. This is Massachusetts. People party here and drink. So you're telling me again what happened in Rockport?
3: So uh back uh it was actually before the Civil War. Uh, there was a woman called Hannah Jumper was her name. Um, she was just an old, uh, she was never married, no kids. She was just a woman that was in Rockport. Uh, it was still a village back then. And, uh, you know, Rockport was known for its uh, fishing community. So the, the men used to go out. They used to fish for weeks on end, come home, spend all their money in the tavern. So uh, Hannah uh, Jumper got a bunch of her friends together. They were known as the Hatchet Gang. They went around, they busted up all the casks, uh dumped out everything and then rockport was a dry town for uh like i said 100 162 years sorry 968 so our first beer it had to be an ode to her so that's why we call it hatchet uh an ode to her as her hatchet gang so if you look closely on the label i actually put her name on it too so it says hannah right on the right on the hilt of the uh of the uh hatchet and that was an ode to her it wasn't a you know a jab in the eye it was just recognizing what her and all of her people did and uh You know, moving forward. And then the story, you know, we named it Rockport Brewing Company because Rockport has a a deep, rich history of not only with the alcohol and and it being a dry town, but just a rich history in general between the quarries and the the artist colony and the ships and the fishing and you name it. So the story was already kind of built, and I wanted to identify with the community, you know, getting everyone to emotionally invest into our brand. So that's why our, our branding and our artwork is very very close to Rockport. Everything is all around it.
2: I did my research before this recording, and I know Massachusetts might have some bad rap about blue laws and founded by Puritans, but I, I looked at some some old records of, of liquor licenses, and I found that in this area from Salem, this is Salem, Haverhill, Newburyport, these towns it, as early as like 1640s and 1650s were given out Liquor licenses, they called them ordinaires, to, to one or sometimes two per town. You know, that, that, that tells you that people were drinking. I and mean, I know there were Quakers here and things, and they still had some cider or mead. So uh, there's, a, there's a rich history here of drinking, isn't there?
3: They did. Well, you also got to remember that beer was a way to consume water when water was not potable. So that's why beer was here. And that's why the, the pilgrim, so to speak— turned off and Plymouth and they didn't make it to Jamestown is because they ran out of beer. (laughs) That's a true story. That is a true story. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and I can speak from, from family history, you know, my family owned a tavern in Bedford that the Minutemen left from to go fight at the battle of Lexington Concord before the revolution. That was the Fitch Tavern. And that's, uh, one part of my family that, that owned that. And it was a uh, incredible experience to be able to go sit in that tavern still intact, Uh, It's a part of someone's residence now, but uh, they let me sit in there and and reflect and kind of meditate a little bit before I uh, got this project off the ground. And I actually thought about doing it in Bedford, sat in a brewery in Bedford, based off of my uh, family history.
2: And another shout-out to our friend Christine Cismondo, a a beer writer. I don't know, 10 years ago, she wrote a book, America Walks Into a Bar. And for me, the highlight of that book was how – Democracy and Independence was founded in taverns and pubs uh, up here in Massachusetts and and other places. Where was the first brewery in in America? Was it in, well, let's say Northeast America, because we don't know about California or somewhere, but was it in Massachusetts or was it in New York?
3: Uh, I'm not sure where the actual first one. I know Yingling kind of categorizes himself as the oldest operating brewery in the United States, Um, but you got to remember that Breweries really weren't a thing back in, you know, the 18th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. They just weren't around uh, here in the United States. They were more predominantly over in Germany, Czechoslovakia, whatever those areas were called back then. 300 years ago, I'm not a historian, so I don't know. But, you know, they weren't really here. You know, the, the strong ales and, the, and the, you know, everything that we had here was to consume water. It wasn't necessarily, you know, getting drunk was just kind of a byproduct of, uh, you know, getting the O2.
2: This is great, rough to a great start with our Rockport Brewing here at RMA Craft Beer, a great packy retail store in uh, Amesbury, Massachusetts, on the road. I'm Jimmy Corboni with Beer Sessions Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes on Heritage Radio Network.
0: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: HRN is excited to announce that we've launched our channel on Kitsch, the new food-centric live streaming video platform for interviews, cooking classes, and more. In April, in collaboration with Kitsch and the Mushroom Council, we're celebrating Earth Month with delicious, nutritious, and sustainable mushroom recipes. Check out the latest videos on our channel to see Eat Your Heartland Out host Capri Kafaro, Jupiter's Almanac host Matthew Rayford, and Item 13 host Yoram Aku, Aku, Aku moderate recipe demos with chefs Jeremy Fox and Allie Rosen. Join us at KITTCH.com to become part of the first live streaming community for the food-obsessed.
2: Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm on location in Amesbury, Massachusetts at a great Packy retail store talking about beer history and with the guys from Rockport Brewing. And hey, become a member, support us at heritageradionetwork.org. So, Ray, we're talking beer history. So, Fitch Tavern Bedford family lore. Let's talk, Massachusetts has a lot of history. So I mentioned, I think in this town, my hometown was Haverhill, Mass. There was an ordinary license issued in 1651. So tell us about Bedford and this Fitch.
3: So the Fitch Tavern, the Fitch family, um, they were an integral part of the revolution and where the idea came with the militia. Um, you know, that is my uh, my father's side of the family. My mother's side of the family is, is predominantly, uh, you know, 20th century immigrants from Ireland, England, Scotland. But, uh, the Fitch, Fitch family is, is huge in that area. Every gravestone is either a Fitch or a Bacon, and that's, uh, you know, in my family, uh, blood, you know, but, uh, that location that I was able to go see, uh, the Fitch Tavern was just, uh, incredible to kind of just sit there and feel and reflect on, you know, where you want to go, where you are, and, you know, the direction that you want to go. So it was, uh, it was great being there. It was great seeing it, uh. I wish it was still open to the public because I wish they would carry our product. (laughs) Uh, That would be incredible. But, you know, hopefully uh, one day we can do an event there to really circle back and do a a full life circle, uh, so to speak.
2: So let's talk history. What what are some other old, like, establishments? I know in New York we have McSorley's. Are there any other places that you you can note up here? I mentioned these ordinaires from why not talk history, right? I mean, we're up here in mass ordinaires from 1640s, 1650s. Um, any other anecdotes about the history of drinking or taverns in this area? Hand up if you got an answer. This is this is the live tasting now, kids. Come on.
3: So in, in Boston, you have the Union Oyster House, which is pretty damn old. You get the Bell in Hand, which is pretty old. Um, in my hometown of South Boston, we have Amorines, which has been around since, you know, late 19th century. Um, So there's rich history. Um, Some of the taverns that have been really old, they just, you know, they've fallen apart, been rebuilt, repurposed, whatever the situation's been. Um, I don't know if too many, you know, like I said, I'm not from the North Shore, so I don't know a lot of North Shore history on on taverns and pubs and all that. I'd have to imagine there is some. (laughs) I'm just not too familiar with it.
2: Yeah, my my friend Chris O'Leary, who writes Brew York, New York, this past year he's been talking about trying to put the spotlight back on on good beer bars and taverns, and in this case, re- retail locations. Um, and I like that you, so basically you need these retail locations, Rusty Can and RMA. That's how you're selling your beer. So why, why was that your strategy? Everyone else the last five years has been, we're going to open a tap room and just sell beer, our pints at full price. Why did you go with this strategy? Because this is what people were doing like 12, 15 years ago.
3: Yeah, so we did it uh, completely Um, (laughs) ass-backwards. The pandemic kind of dictated the way that we were going to go. And, you know, when we first came up with the idea of actually trying our beer on the commercial market, you know, we were supposed to brew the week after the state shut down here in Massachusetts. We were supposed to literally brew in March of 2020. So we had to scrap that plan with our brewing partner and wait until June of 2020. And then we did a small batch. We did a 15-barrel batch just to see how it went, making sure it was going to be all right. Um, caught on fire. We sold out of that entire batch in like three days, which was incredible. I think, you know, we only yielded maybe 110 cases, you know, which seemed like a lot, but we were starting from scratch. We didn't have any partners in the industry yet. Um, but places, establishments like RMA and all the people that we've been able to meet along our journey. And it hasn't even been that long, you know, it really hasn't, you know, it'll be two years in June and the amount of people that we've just been able to connect with without them, we wouldn't be selling beer. You know, because of the pandemic affected that from the get-go where we couldn't even get into a space if we wanted to. Never mind getting materials, uh, equipment on that scale. You know, I wasn't about to start a commercial brewery with a one-barrel setup like I have now in my, uh, in my garage. You know, it wouldn't have been cost-effective to do so. You would lose your shirt doing that, trying to get it out. So the pandemic, the short answer is the pandemic is the reason we kind of did it backwards the way that a lot of the big boys now, you know, that you consider big boys today. You know, Sam Adams is one of them, or Boston Beer Company. They started that way. You know, uh, Jim started that way, you know, hustling beer out the back of his car. Same thing up in Portland, Maine. Another big one is Bissell Brothers up that way. They were selling, you know, out of the back of their car and off their backs. You know, that's the way that you And people gravitate towards that hustle. You know, they see you hustling and selling one case at a time. I never put minimums on everything. I never said, listen, I can't get you this or I can't get you that. If someone was like, hey, I'm out of beer, could you get it to me tonight? I'll be driving up there with the case, you know, so it's infectious. Um, and that's honestly the the way that I was raised. It's just, if you want something, get it done. You know, go
2: get oh, that, that's a great attitude. I, I remember like, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago, we talked about contract brewing and there was mixed feelings about it. But then we saw like two roads in Connecticut really built the facilities to help all these really small breweries grow, like even Lawson's Finest and, and um, some some other friends that that it's really been an important part of their business. So you said there's where you're looking. It's it's hard to find some some commercial locations that, that could work for you as a brewery. So uh, are you having trouble finding places to brew, or, or did you? you know, how hard was it was it to find that brewing location?
3: Uh, so uh, you're talking about as far as like a contract. Yeah. So when we first had a contract brewing, there's only a few breweries in Massachusetts that will take on contract brands. So you were kind of limited in that pool. We were lucky to hook up with our first partner. You know, we have since moved on. We had, you know, slight disagreements. You know, it's it's fine. It was in the best interest of their business. It was in the best interest of our business. So it was a mutual uh, parting. You know, we're still friends, and none, none of that was solid. Uh, we moved on to another one. It was just a volume game at that point. We, we were kind of maxed out of the capacity that we could brew at our first partner, and we moved on to another partner that can kind of handle the volume we're looking at. Um, you know, right now after, uh, I believe after the first week of May, we're brewing every week or have, we're packaging every week all the way through until September. So we don't really have a break in between and we're not doing small batches, we're doing 60 barrel batches. So we're moving a good amount of volume um, through that. And then obviously beer gardens and festivals and events that are popping up. So we had to up our game because um, when you're in the in the beer industry or any, you know, spirits industry, whatever it is, you know, any sort of um commodity it's a volume game so the more you can brew the smaller our margin or the better our margins get you know the smaller our cost is because of the larger batches you know everything's going up in cost so you kind of have to roll with the punches you know we rounded out our team by adding some more uh you know sales managers and you know talent to our team to be able to grow our brand organically you know we're not trying to force feed it down people's throats try our liquid give it a shot you like it put it on let's see how it goes you know, there's no minimums on orders, so if it doesn't do well on the first case or the first log or half barrel, then, you know, we get it. You know, you got to be realistic about this stuff, too. You know, we're not one of the big boys that's like, hey, you have to take our stuff because we're local. We're not that way. We want to let our liquid and our overall attitude kind of dictate our sales.
2: So sales, you're talking old school. You're talking about pouring and tasting your liquid. With the public, whether it's festivals, I and mean, sometimes you go to Whole Foods or these kind of bigger supermarkets and they've got someone tasting the latest snack food. But when you taste that stuff, you 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 buy it, you know. And I and often I, I wouldn't I never would would buy a beer unless unless I got to taste it. So how important is, is Tyler to, to, to that?
3: So Tyler's huge, you know. Uh like I said earlier, his his personality is electric, but he also believes in the brand. You know, he believes in our liquid. And that's something that you can't teach. You know, it's something that you can't bang something over over someone's head about it's either you're into it or you're not and tyler's into it um not just with our brand but just crap beer in general you know he's into the whole market he's into the scene you know he it's a lifestyle honestly when you really look at uh, hop heads and everyone else you know they're not really cookie cutter but you know if you're into it you're into it um and tyler has that electric personality that he is 100 percent into it
2: so tyler i walk into the store what's the line that you hook me with so i'll try your beer
4: I'll say, hey, do you want to try some free beer?
2: you got to say that again, one more time.
4: <laughs> I'll say, hey, do you want to try some free beer? <laughs> and so,
2: okay, so I'll try this one. What is it?
4: So I would be like, oh, man, if you if you like some hazy New England style IPAs, I got this one right here for you, bro. It's Jetty Juice. You know, it's the perfect beer. It's It doesn't stick on your palate. It's tropical, stone fruit, citrus medley. It's... It's just phenomenal. I, and, I, you know, at that point, it's like, oh, just please give me something, man. And so I pour him on a sample. I say, here you go, bro. And <laughs> I'll say, here you go. And then I'll be like, I'll pour one for myself, too. Cheers. And then we both sip it. And we lock eyes. And that's when we <laughs> both know this beer is delicious. <laughs> and he's like, where is it at? And I show him. I, it's, and then I'll say, follow me, man. Follow me to the cooler. Open the cooler door. I grab the four-pack. From my hand to his. You know, it's just at that point, he's locked into the brand because the beer is delicious. He knows that I love it, and it's like you know we're we're together in this moment, and you know we just confide in each other over brews.
2: <laughs> so, so, how do you describe yourself? Are you a beer sensei?
4: Some would say that, yeah. Some would say that. I would, I've I've been known to be called Ty Lord of Brews. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you know and i have i you know I, i've i've ran liquor stores i've i've managed beer for for years and a lot of times people after they get to know me and i recommend you know not even just one brand i'll I'll throw out a couple brands and they'll they'll taste it they'll love it and then they come back and they say you know what do you recommend and at that point they don't even ask any questions it's just like what do you you know it's just like oh you you like this beer i'm gonna buy this beer because they trust me because i'm not gonna lie to them I'm like you know I'm not playing the game where it's like, oh, it's about sales, it's about money, it's about this. It's like, no, this is the beer that you want to try because it's quality product, it's delicious, and like, you know, that's that's what I'm all about. I just, there's no games when it comes to beer.
2: No, you're a pro, and it, it it's, I just love that, you know, people build their careers around this industry because it's really a great one. Ready for you? You got a secret day job? You, you're wearing a Rockford Brewing outfit. But you actually have a serious job, and, and uh, I think I know some people that are part of what you do.
3: You do so. I am a uh, a business representative for the IUPAT, which is the International Union Union of Painters and Allied Trades. Um, I'm a specific trade. I'm a glazer by trade. So uh, before, actually, before I was in the office, before I was, you know, helping my guys and gals in my local go to work and creating work opportunities and representing working families, I used to hang off the side of uh, high rises. And installing uh, curtain wall. So, I come from a, uh, a rich history of union activists and, and union families. I'm a uh, fourth generation, and uh, so this was actually so. Maceter is our dryer stout. That's the uh, that was the first generation union member right there. Owen McAteer. He was a uh, elevator constructor here in Boston, local four. Um, unfortunately, he died on the job. Uh, he was crushed by an elevator down the Seaport here in Boston, back when my uh, grandmother was less than a year old. So I never got to meet him, but an incredible man, incredible uh, story, life history. But, you know, so I'm a, uh, I am a union guy through and through. There's no doubt about that.
2: Here, get, uh, give us some more uh, just shout-outs or, I don't know, what, what what's, what's the term? Not obituary, but, you know, good things to say about some of these other union guys. Because I know you, you, I've seen you reference them.
3: Yeah, so it, it just... The union is a, is sometimes it's a uh, scary word to some people. When I hear union, I hear collective bargaining agreement. I hear safe working conditions. I hear, uh, you know, working families and I hear retirement and not so much security. Um, like some, some unions, you know, our guys and gals, you know, they're basically employees at will. If they're not good at their job, you know, they, they usually don't hold the job too long. But we do a great job of training our members. So, you know, I'm fortunate enough that it's not really a day job because i don't turn it off it's 24 hours a day seven days a week but i also do the brewery stuff at night but i'm fortunate enough where i have a great team around me that really does a lot of the legwork, i just kind of sign off on the stuff at this point you know it was a lot of a lot of legwork at the beginning when i was doing it by myself pulling basically double duty you know i'll be going from a contract ratification vote to then slinging bear at you know seven o'clock at night you know so like i said earlier the hustle's in me um You know, my dedication is definitely there for the members that I represent. You know, my district council, we represent glazers, uh, commercial painters, uh, bridge painters, residential painters, drywall finishers, the Boston custodians. So we represent in total about 4,600 members, um, primarily in Massachusetts, but technically all of New England, but mostly in Massachusetts. So I think that is also giving me a good business sense as well, Um, you know, having exposure to that. You know, I've always been driven since I was probably about 20 years old to get to that spot. You know, I was uh, first put on as an organizer, so I got to know and, and really hone in my my people skills talking to open shop workers, you know, people that weren't represented and uh, in, in, in helping explain to
2: them. Well, what's, first, I'm going to take a step back because um, my buddy Dave Infante, who's a uh, Fingers. He's uh, talking a lot more about unions as a, as a beer and drinks writer. And uh, our good buddy in England, Pete Brown, you got to read his new book. It's coming out, Clubland. It's about working men's clubs in England. But it, it, this is about workers and workers in unions. And there, there is a tie together. And I think that all, all the things that have happened in craft beer and other industries and the need for hu- human resources, it was Pete Brown who, who said to me last summer, he says, no, dude, it's the unions. Unions have that role and even when the baseball players were on strike even though it was big owners and 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 well- paid baseball players they were still in it as workers you want to talk about that
3: sure so uh, specifically with the major league baseball strike you know everyone thinks that you know professional athletes they make all this money and the owners don't make it anything it's actually the opposite most of the owners are completely greedy and the money that the players get the big doc, the big bucks only go to the top one percent of the players. You know, you'll have a, a major league baseball player that's been in the league for ten years. They'll still take them to arbitration over a three hundred thousand dollar contract. You know, so a lot of that money is dictated. You know, they obviously have a different deal than other unions and other you know bargaining units. But theirs is basically dictated by uh, like revenue yeah. uh, through like ads and TV deals. Same thing with the NBA, the NFL. So when you see a player making thirty million dollars a year. It's because he is the top 1% of that. You know, he, he's, but what about the other 99%? You know, it's about raising up all workers. You know, those teams don't win championships with one player. You know, it's a team sport for a reason. So I think that dispute, you know, without getting too deep into it, was about raising the wages and you know, the, the effectiveness of the contracts for, quote-unquote, the lower-tier players and not just you know, the, the best of the best. So when it comes down to unions, you know, we represent workers and it's not even about strangling people or any of that stuff. You know, it's about safe working conditions. It's about health care. It's about, you know, a a livable wage. You know, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. And that's what the unions bring. And that's why we've seen a massive influx, you know, and that's why we have the Labor Secretary of the United States now, uh, you know, Martin J. Walsh, who uh, I may, may have met once or twice in my lifetime.
2: Wait, tell us about this guy. Wasn't he the mayor of Boston?
3: He was. Uh, so so Martin J. Walsh was the mayor of Boston. Before that, he was actually the uh, president of the Boston Building Trades. So I've been fortunate enough to to know Marty since I was about 14 years old. He grew up in the neighborhood next to me. He was originally from Dorchester, still lives there, and I grew up in South Boston. So um, my congressman, who I knew very well growing up, he was a friend of my grandmother's. Joe Moakley actually introduced me to Marty Walsh when I was 14 years old up at the State House. So I've known Marty for a while. You know, I'm sure everyone listening knows who he is from watching him on TV. And, uh, you know, he's putting unions back on the map. You know, you have President Biden speaking about unions and Amazon unionizing, Starbucks unionizing, you know, which is incredible. You know, it's not even about getting one over on the owner. It's about creating a fair playing field for the workers.
2: And just to digress, because we can drink beer at union meetings, right?
3: Uh, that is actually, it's actually against the rules. You cannot drink beer at Union meetings unless it's a cookout or a barbecue.
2: So a- afterwards, we're, we're not at a Union Meeting, but um, this is interesting. We will be doing a show about this in May with uh, Pete Brown and his work in men's clubs. and Maybe you'll come on with us, Ray, but um, that's pretty great. And I want to throw this out. I don't need to talk politics, but perhaps the answer, whether you want to tax billionaires or whatever, is that maybe it's just... Having more unions, like we used to when I was a kid, my dad was in communications workers of America, and I know he worked hard, but at least he had vacations and health care, and he didn't really worry about his job, but he he worked really hard yep. and that's what it
3: comes down to is is most folks in the union realize that you know uh, you have some people that will call them freeloaders or whatever it is you can't get fired because of the contract that isn't true you know there's always ways there, there always has to be an agreement between management. And the union and the members that we represent so at the end of the day um you know what does that mean for rockport brewing company i am hoping to be the first fully affiliated union brewery in the united states you know there are other breweries uh, mostly the big boys uh, the major conglomerates abm bev miller Coors. they are signed on with the teamster for their uh truck drivers and also their warehouse workers but the brewers front of house sales staff you name it none of them have uh, proper representation in the workplace so you know, hopefully there is a, uh, I wouldn't call it a reckoning, but just a, you know, a wake-up call that, you know, the United States is becoming completely lopsided as far as wealth. Uh, and
2: This is a great segue. Just shout-out to Gerard Fagenberg, beer writer, and Dave Infante. I know you're listening. We're going to be doing the show in May with Pete Brown. We're going to talk more about this, and maybe Ray will join us. So now, back to sales, the working guys. Um, Tyler, what's this next beer? It's dark. It looks beautiful.
4: It is dark. It is beautiful, and it is delicious. It's the MacIntyre's Dry Irish Stout. Um, this one, you know, my main selling point.
2: Wait, this is the guy that was crushed in an elevator.
3: He was. Yep. So this is my uh, great grandfather, World War One veteran, uh, immigrant from Ireland to the United States. He joined the. Uh, he actually joined the army before he was even a citizen because he be- he loved this country, and you know, so he was a. Uh, once he was done in World War One. You know, he was over in France, he got hurt. Um, I don't know if he got shot or stabbed. There wasn't too uh, explicit on what happened to him, but he came home injured, joined uh, Local 4 Elevator Constructors Union here in Boston. He was a member for about 12 years before he was uh, ultimately killed on the job.
2: So you might say that unions are an important part of America.
3: Yes, in my opinion, you know, as far as workplace safety, which is first and foremost, because what good is a job if, if you're risking your life every single day you get to go? You know, it's that's first and foremost, you know, businesses look at as a, as a hindrance, but it's proven and I've seen it in my own eyes by having you know, stringent safety regulations actually increases production uh, rather than decreases production on no matter what it is, whether it's manufacturing, construction, whatever the situation is, safe working conditions will always create more production. Um, and that's what it comes down to, you know, and hopefully there is a, 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 a coming back because we lost a lot of unions. Sometimes it was just jobs went overseas because, you know, a deal was signed in the mid 90s to then start shipping uh, manufacturing jobs specifically overseas for a cheaper price. You know, that's why a lot of the uh, unions went away, you know, especially the auto industry uh, in Detroit, uh, in Michigan, you know, where they needed a bailout, you know, because their their pensions were failing because there were more people drawing on the pension than putting in. And then you know, certain uh, people use that as a a knife, so to speak, to kind of drive the division. And it's not. Sometimes it's not even about the work, and sometimes it's situations that you can't control on why some unions survived and ones didn't. You know, uh, bargaining units. There's a, there's a million reasons why they're they're not around. But in my opinion, there needs to be it needs to be it needs to come back around because it will level of the play. Will fail with uh, you know wealth inequality in this in this country. And I know I'm probably getting
2: on a little bit of a soapbox right now, but you know what's true? Well, I guess that the whole point is letting people know that u- unions are what we're all looking for because it helps create a working middle class. Now, Dark and Beautiful.
4: Tell us about it. Dark and Beautiful and Delicious. So It's my new album. <laughs> I hope I'm on that track. Um, so this is the McAteer's Dry Irish Stout. Usually my main selling point for this one is, you know, it's it's right on par with Guinness, except there's more body, more flavor. Um, and the same low ABV that we all know and love, just so you can, you know, you can throw a couple back and, you, you know, you're not going to be wobbling out of the bar at the end of the day. Um, this, this is one of my go-tos, you know, in the, in the colder months, it's, it's a no-brainer. You can, you can throw it in, like, you know, you can, you can make a meal out of it. Um, 4.3 on this one for what the ABV? For the ABV on this one, yeah. So it's nice and low on that. So it's it's right on par with Guinness, but like I said, more body, more flavor, same crushability, and obviously it's it's more local. You know, it's it's a small batch compared to to what Guinness is putting out. So um yeah, this is one of my go-tos and you can throw it in a pot roast, you can add it to you know your meals, you can throw it in the slow cooker. It's it's got versatility. So
2: cooking with beer, I love that. So back back to Ray, the beer. So this is a dry Irish style. It's in a can. Yep. So what was the challenges of making a dry Irish style in a can? We know that with the Guinness-style beers, there's that little sparkler in this nitro pour. It's like a different kind of beer. I personally love like a real cascale, and I know that that's what that's trying to mimic. You know, so what what were your goals putting in a can and the carbonation levels and everything. Let's get technical on this one.
3: So on the technical, you know, it's just the same. You know, we do uh, the 2.3 uh, per vol. You know, so it's not overly carbonated. It's all CO2. We don't use any nitro in it, even though we have put it on nitro before, and it's absolutely delicious. You know, the nitro just gives it, uh, you know, to break it down, smaller bubbles. So you really don't get those big bubbles that kind of hit you in the nose a little bit, like some of the beers that have over-carbonated. Um, with this one specifically... I wanted to make it a little bit more local than uh, Guinness. So I switched up a few of the ingredients. You know, there aren't too many ingredients in dry ourselves in general. Um, So we just switched a couple of those up to to my flavor palette. You know, this is one of the first recipes that I kind of did. It's very simple. It's a simple, simple, very simple uh, recipe. Um, So, you know, is it good? 100%. You know, is it easy to make? It actually is. You know, anyone can make beer. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> it's just all about the equipment, you know, and, and cleanliness, honestly, at the end of the day. But with this beer in particular, you know, I was looking for something a little bit darker that, you know, I first started making IPAs and everything else that everyone wanted to drink. And I'm like, you know, I like Dryer side, I like Guinness. I want to make something that isn't Guinness, similar, but it isn't the same thing. And that's how we kind of came up with a recipe creation on this one.
2: A big part of this year is that everybody homebrews, <laughs> separate from the need for unions, but everybody homebrews and, uh, did you ever make a, a stout or a dark beer recipe as a home brewer, and if so, what was it?
3: Uh, it's the one you're drinking. All these recipes were homebrew brew uh, recipes. So uh, like we touched on earlier, I started making five-gallon batches in my driveway, and just, you know, you have the ability to dump it if you need to and, and kind of tweak it and go as you, as you can with making five gallons. Five gallons isn't that much, you know, and it, it's a lot less time than doing even a 14-gallon batch or than a 20-gallon batch or a one-barrel batch where you kind of elevate it where you you become a little bit more picky on the things that you want to kind of experiment with. And with this one, it was, uh, you know, I think I only did like two or three iterations of this one before I kind of settled on it. Like I said, it's a simple recipe that you just tweak it here or there as far as the, the the volume amounts of the grain that you're using or how long you want to let it sit for, you know, the ferment out. And if you're going to, even dry hop it. I don't dry hop this one, but, you know, I did play around with it a little bit. There's a lot of different technical things that you could do to do to tweak it just that little bit where it's like, all right, you notice a difference. Um, but this one, this one's very simple. This one's simple. This is the homebrew recipe that I used to do.
2: Well, it's great, guys. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you and tasting with you. Um, so, again, thanks to Tyler and Ray of Rockport Brewing. We're here at RMA Craft Beer Shop, which was formerly what? A craft beer seller's, right? So, yep. So this is a lot of tradition in this town, Amesbury, Massachusetts, north of Boston, kind New Hampshire, and um, we got to discover it and be welcomed by Aaron, the owner, and his family. And um, I don't know, <laughs> excuse me, I don't know what else to say. I'm just happy that we did this, and um, it's great getting to know all these like small breweries in Massachusetts. There's a lot of potential here. Things are really great. So when you come up to visit Newburyport, Rockport. Come to Boston, just, just come up here, too. So thanks so much, guys. Thanks to Armada, engineer, who's going to clean this up. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be part of the food world's most innovative community. Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends and please join the HRN family.